Hi everyone, thanks for watching The Contributors. I'm Victor Gitschan. My today's guest has been a serial direct marketer for almost 40 years and during his celebrated career he has sent close to 2 billion pieces of direct response promotions. According to Mark Ford, Brian Kurtz was one of the wonderkins who practically invented direct marketing publishing in the 1980s. At the height of Brian's infomercial success, he was responsible for buying media in excess of 80 million dollars and was selling 1 million books a year via direct response television. He never met a medium he didn't like. He was even selling subscriptions and books on the back of ATM receipts and under yogurt leads. If you want to learn how to build a business for a lifetime playing the long game in direct response marketing, watch this interview until the very end. Under Brian's marketing leadership and during his tenure, boardrooms revenue went from $5 million in 1981 to high over $150 million in 2006. In his new book, Over Deliver, Brian shares how you can use offers, copy, multi-channel marketing, continuity, and a lot more to be a better marketer, grow your business, make more money, and make a big impact in your market. Please welcome my guest, one of the greatest marketing minds alive, Brian Kurtz. Hi, Brian. Thanks so much for joining our show. Oh, thanks, Victor. It's a pleasure to be here. And that was quite an introduction. You approached me and I saw that the title of your show is The Contributor's Show. That resonated with me very deeply because, as you know, in my book, in fact, chapter 10, which is the last chapter, and it's called, you know, playing the long game. And we can talk a lot about playing the long game in this interview in terms of lifetime value and all the other concepts that it's involved. But playing the long game for me, people think that, you know, I'm, I'm a networker. I, I just I, I go meet people all the time. And that, that was the secret to my success. It's important to network. I opened the chapter and I said, I hate the word networking for someone who's known as someone who networks a lot. And it was actually the definition of networking to me gets changed to what I call contributing to connect. And it's so different. It may just be word, but they're important words because networking implies, you know, glad handing, just meeting everybody, having the most Facebook friends, the most contacts on LinkedIn. That's network. Contributing mm -hmm to connect. And you know you know this because you have a show called The Contributor Show, that right. you have to contribute to the other person, the other party, whoever the other is in marketing. And that talks about relationship capital, which we're going to talk about. But it's really about you know contributing first with no expectation of a return. And right. the returns you get because your philosophy is that after 40 years, I can tell you that it's a much better way to be. Contribute, 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 give, 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 lead with value, lead with only your best stuff all the time. And what comes back to you, whether from the person you're contributing to or someone else, because you're contributing to this person, something else comes from over here. I just mm -hmm. feel like it's the only way to do business. And it's not that complicated. I mean, I didn't invent it. I didn't invent anything. But I, you know, by, by subscribing to this type of um, general philosophy, it makes marketing a lot easier. You know, marketing right. can be really hard or it could be really easy. Not really easy. I mean, there's a lot of hard work involved in marketing. You know, you don't sell. I, it was what you said. I sold a million books a year. I mean, I, there were years we sold almost three and a half million books a year. Okay. You know, to do that isn't easy, but it is fairly simple if you, you know, kind of get the bedrock, your relationships, the bedrock of in fact, you quoted somebody in your notes about someone who talks about uh, Peter Redford said, business is about relationships. If there are no relationships, there's no business, which is, right. is tied into all of this, too. I just think that having a show called The Contributor's Show is, you know, you had me at, hi, Brian, would you like to do an interview? I mean, just because it was called The Contributor's Show. And then I, I found out that you're you're a rock star in your own right, and you've been interviewing some amazing people, and I feel blessed to be here in the same Thank company you. as the people you've already interviewed, and you. Thank you. Yeah, and believe it or not, but uh, your book and that chapter about the contribution and the contribution capital was an inspiration for me to pick up this name, because 
because I spent a lot of time with Jay, with my mentor, you know, Jay Abraham, right? Yeah, he and wrote he, the forward to the book. And yeah. this idea, when we're looking for different names for the show, finally, it just came to my mind, like, why not, not to cut the contributors? Because we're going to invite people who contribute in all their life experience, everything. So why don't we call it as it should be called? Jay inspired me very early on in my career. I've known Jay since the early to mid-1980s. Jay consulted with all the newsletter businesses back then. He was someone who chose me. And we could talk about this. You know, I say, you don't choose your mentors, your mentors choose you. And right. I got Jay to choose me, be my mentor. Um, mm. And I can tell you that story. And I have a lot of other stories about that too. But beauty of Jay is that he quoted, he has a quote that I, I have it on my wall in on a wood block you know, inscribed. And it says, if you've done it, you have an obligation to teach it. That's the quote. And actually, well, Jay goes beyond that. He goes, you have a moral obligation to teach. So right. that his philosophy is that, you know, if you have 40, I have 40 years experience, but it's not one year's experience for 40 years. It's 40 years of cumulative experience. And if right. you have that, you got to share it. You got to, you know, not, not to brag about it, not to show off, but you've got this body of wisdom, not knowledge, wisdom that you must share. And having Jay as a mentor put me in a position where if I wasn't sharing, I was falling down on the job. You know, I had two careers. I had the career at Boardroom for 34 years, and now I've been in, in my new business in Titans Marketing for seven years. It was doing for 34 and now teaching for seven and interesting when you're teaching, you know, you're you're learning as much as you're teaching because if you create the groups that I've created, my masterminds and people I hang around with, you you know, I always say if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. I basically have created a rooms in my life, whether they're my masterminds or masterminds I'm a member of, that I am never the smartest person in the room. And therefore, I could teach those rooms. I could teach concepts that we could talk about today and I'll I'll teach your audience some stuff, maybe. But at the same time, I'm learning because I'm in a room with people who are contributing, who are high achievers, who are doing the same thing that I'm doing because they did it and now they're teaching it and I can learn from them. So the idea is to use, I always say, if you use your wisdom and what you've learned over your career as your golden ticket into room. So in other words, I get into a room because someone thinks I know something that his room or her room needs to hear. That's my golden ticket into the room. Now I know that in that room of this superstars mastermind, or whatever, there's going to be people there that are way smarter than me on a variety of things. But I got the golden ticket because they want to learn from me. But that's only the ticket. That's the ticket in the door. Then you expand on it by learning from everybody else. And that's where you just exponentially gain more wisdom. And it's, again, it's simple. It, it's not easy to do. It, it's simple though, when you think about it, you know, being in rooms where you're not the smartest is step one. And then bringing your wisdom, what you're the expert in, because everybody's an expert in this much in the world. No matter what you do or what you've done, you're an expert in this much. Now, some people are an expert in this much. Some people will tell you they're experts in this much and they're maybe they're full of it or maybe they really are. But being an expert in this much puts you in a position, like going deep in a, in a certain area, puts you in a position just be like a use, I want to say a tool, but you become a useful person to so many other people. Again, a simple philosophy that goes a long way, I think. You are one of the inventors of direct response marketing. Could you describe for our viewers what is direct response marketing and what types of businesses can use it? I'm not an inventor of anything. I'm a, a student of direct marketing. I apply all of its concepts all the time. But there were people that came before me that laid the groundwork for the invention of it. But invention is, isn't even important. It's that you are able to, if you can present concepts, if you can, I did this in Over Deliver because you said in my book, you learn stuff that you never heard of before, yet I know that everything in my book is not anything I invented. What, what does that mean? It means that you weren't exposed to it. I exposed you to it in my book. Therefore, I'm the messenger for the invention or whatever it is, the innovation. And then I become the messenger to you. And then I become a mentor of sorts to you by default. It's a wonderful occurrence that happens all the time when you're always teaching, you're always sharing, and you're always putting stories on the sharing. So going back to your question, direct marketing, direct response marketing is 
basically, it's fairly simple. It's measurable marketing. You know, it's advertising that pays out, that has an ROI all the time. That means that any list you mail in direct mail, any ad you run on Facebook, anything that you do in the marketplace needs to pay out at some point. Maybe not on the first order, but it's got to pay out at some point. Otherwise, it's not worth doing. That's direct marketing. As far as mm -hmm. companies that can employ direct marketing, every company on the planet should be employing direct marketing. You know, I, mm -hmm. I cringe sometimes when I see ads on the Super Bowl or, you know, and they have no response mechanism. They have no way of the advertiser being able to figure out if the ad worked or not. If they have an 800 number, if they have a website, a landing page, at least they can get some measurability of the money that they spent on the ad. And that's all direct marketing is. And mm -hmm. what's interesting is that a lot of, as time has gone on, I, I, I grew up in the 1980s in the business. So in the 1980s, a lot of the general advertising businesses, like the big agencies like Ogilvy and Mather and uh, Wonderman and all these big agencies all developed a direct division. Mm -hmm. They actually differentiated between advertising and direct marketing. Like Ogilvy and Mather had a division called Ogilvy and Mather Direct. And mm -hmm. the direct divisions eventually like just superseded the general parts of the agency because everybody mm -hmm. wanted to do direct marketing because why not? You're going to do advertising advertising, why not make it pay? That's the overall definition. There's a lot of things intertwined in, in that definition, of course, but anybody who doesn't know what direct marketing is should know, and it's applicable to any business of any kind. I mean, if you're a dentist and you want to get patients and you want to do a direct mail campaign, you need to know if that direct mail campaign brought in patients. You have to have a way to key it. You have to wait. Mm -hmm. You have to have an 800 number that they either, when they call, they say, I got your, how did you hear about us? And they tell mm -hmm. you it's the direct mail. So you can chalk it up to the direct mail, or you could even have a coupon that they fill out. And the coupon has a key code on it that tells you where mm -hmm. it came from. I mean, mm -hmm. you can do it at the, at the, at the local level in a, in a community and you can do it mailing a hundred million names a year, which we did in direct mail. And you can mm -hmm. do it on any meet in any medium, online or offline. Can business to business use direct response marketing? Absolutely. When you're selling a course to businesses to help them, you know, grow their business, that alone is you you can use direct marketing techniques all the time. Whether it's and, and online, you know, the fact that that you can in, in online marketing, when you do launches online with video and, and launch content, the idea that you can give away your best stuff now for free. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. because if you're a great marketer and you know you've got great stuff, you know that you give away your best stuff for free, you have more best stuff behind that that you can right. make people have people pay for. And so, you know, B2B, B2C, it doesn't matter. Direct marketing mm. principles <laughs> are universal in that respect as well. So you've been in direct response marketing for almost 40 years. So how and why did you decide to specialize in direct response marketing? Obviously, like a lot of people, I fell into direct marketing. I was looking, when I came out of college, I was I, I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be a film critic. I wanted to, you know, just write. And when I got to Boardroom, the company that I started with and in, who was a direct marketer, I started in the list management division, which was a great place to start because we were renting our list to everybody. And the list is the most important element of direct marketing. I didn't know that when I got the job. I thought I would do that for a year and then go into the editorial side so I could write because Boardroom mm -hmm. published newsletters and books. I figured I'd be a writer there. And after a year, I got so hooked on direct marketing. First of all, for the measurability aspect that I already talked about. What I mean by that is that basically everything you do in direct marketing, you're getting feedback on it every step of the way, good and bad. You know, you're getting the good news about a promotion that you do that did well, and you're getting feedback and, and results on promotions that stink. And mm -hmm. so you're constantly being evaluated by the marketplace. And that, mm -hmm. I think anybody who's been in the business for a long time would say this, that it's addictive because if you want to be creative, if you want to create offers, if you want to create products, if you want to market, you know, in in the in the marketplace, you're getting feedback on everything you do from people by how they respond, how they pay, how they enjoy your product or service. There's nothing better than that. And so some people don't want that. I mean, some people like general advertising where they can throw right. an ad up on a billboard or on TV 
They don't want to get responses. You know, it's just, oh, if our business does better, it must have worked. That doesn't appeal to me at all. And in fact, my first book was called Mm -hmm. The Advertising Solution, which was a profile of six legends of advertising. David Ogilvy, John Caples, Claude Hopkins, Robert Collier, Gene Schwartz, and Gary Halbert. The last two were world-class copywriters too. The reason why we called it the advertising solution, it's a book about direct marketing, but basically those six guys in particular, we identified, my co-author Craig Simpson and I, identified six legends of advertising, which would be like Mad Men, Mad Men in the 60s. Some of them, I mean, Claude Hopkins was writing and, and marketing in the 1930s, but Most of them are like from the 1960s, 70s, and a little bit into the 80s. And they were madmen. They were just advertisers. However, they were the real pioneers that invented direct marketing. They saw the potential for the idea of measuring responses and getting feedback on everything you do. And so we profiled them. And so the book's called The Advertising Solution, but it could have been called The Direct Marketing, The Roots of Direct Marketing, you know, that where it started. We didn't position the book that way. Although I did put, I think when I was talking about Ogilvy in the book, I said he was a direct marketer trap, an advertising man's body. Direct marketing wasn't known in the 1950s and 60s, but people were picking up on the fact, why not get a return on investment on everything you do? So they understood it, but he had to sort of play the game of being the advertising man. In fact, in the show Mad Men, the lead character played by John Hamm is a prototype of David Ogilvy of sorts, you know, the, the people who created the show. So to answer your question, I just got addicted. And then because I was working in lists, just by by chance that I got the job in list management, that understanding the audience, understanding who you're marketing to was so, I mean, not just addictive to me, but it was basically at the root. It's at the root of everything in direct marketing. I was hooked very, very quickly. And I never looked back. In fact, after I was at Boardroom for like a year, year and a half, president, the, the owner of the company who became my ultimate mentor, Marty Edelston, came to me and said, you know, Brian, there's a, actually there was a, an opening that came up in the editorial department. So I went to Marty and I said, I'd really like to take that job. And this is like a turning point in my career at age 24, when Marty looked at me and he says, you know, Brian, I think you have a nose for marketing. I don't think you should take the job. It's his company. I mean, he could tell me not to take the job. He could tell me that he, I could have the job. I think he would have let me do it, but he was warning me that going into an editorial job and putting headphones on, silent headphones, so I could sit and write all day in a, mm-hmm. in a closed room was not the best use of my skills. And he had identified that I had marketing skills even after seeing me work for a year, year and a half. So, you know, you're 23, 24 years old. Who are you going to believe? Your own instincts at 23, 24, or a guy who's building this incredible direct marketing company who's telling you that you have a nose for marketing? That was a major turning point. And then I never looked back. And the interesting thing is that I look back today, you know, 40 years later, and I'm writing. I'm not a copywriter per se, but I have a weekly blog. I wrote two books. So I got to write. So I love writing. I loved, I was an English major in college. So I like to read. I like to write. So I've, I still write. I was still able to incorporate that. I write really good emails. I, I, don't, I spend a lot of time when I craft an email to somebody, whether it's selling something or not selling something, whether it's just connecting with somebody or contributing to somebody. And so I'm writing every day. But the direct marketing piece was so, I don't know, it was just an epiphany. I just had an epiphany. And I said, this is what I'm going to do the rest of my life. That's an amazing story. you lucky you met such a good mentor who actually show you where you actually, what is your calling, actual calling? This yeah, is like, yeah. I mean, age. you know what? You don't want to. You don't. I don't want to take that too far. You don't. You don't want to listen to charlatans. You don't want to listen to people who are telling you bullshit. But you know, coming from him, the credibility was so huge, and so that's another thing. You have to. You know, it's not just listen to everybody's advice and take right. it. It was just such a natural thing to believe him. What was your first successful direct marketing campaign that made you say, "This is it. This is what I love, and this is what I'm gonna do." It wasn't one campaign, but it was it was a couple of things early on where we were selling books and newsletters and I saw, you know, working with like a world-class copywriter and they did a package, an amazing package that lifted the response rate on the existing control. The control is the package that you're mailing out or the promotion you're mailing out. That's the current winner, that that's the one that you're using to sell your product or service. And we always say that the control is your enemy. That's how we that's how we worked at board. 
good room. So mm. anytime you had a control, as soon as it became the control, it was time to beat it. You had to go mm. come up with another package. I think it was watching the world-class copywriters that we employed at Boardroom, and we were all over them. I mean, we would always look for, and I'm talking about people like Gary Bensavenga, Gene Schwartz, Jim Rutz, Mel Martin, Clayton Makepeace, a little later on, Jim Punk. These are the best copywriters who've ever lived. And every one of them worked for Boardroom, or at least the ones that were alive while Boardroom was promoting. And so, you know, I'm not bragging, but I had the privilege of working with every great copywriter who's been alive during my life. Almost everyone. Watching them work and watching them have, I guess if you want to narrow it down to a promotion, it would be the first time that Gary Bensavenga beat Bottom Line Personal Control, which was our big newsletter, by 120%. You know, watching Mm -hmm. that and watching him work and then working, I was in charge of, you know, the marketing. He was in charge of the copy, but I was basically creating the lists, the list universe to mail to. It was so amazing to look at list history of you, you mail packages or promotions to a certain list history of certain, a list of lists. And then the new package comes along from the world-class copywriter and each list goes up from like, you know, one and a half percent response to 3% response. And you're going, holy mackerel, you know, mm-hmm. because that we have the list dialed in. Once you get yeah. world-class creative on top of that, that is direct marketing nirvana. It's like mm-hmm. the, the pinnacle of direct marketing. Anytime we ever had a huge lift in response, it was always because we had a new copywriter with a new approach with new copy. But we didn't start there. We always had the list and the offer dialed in to then go to the copywriter. And it ties into something else I think you wanted to ask about, which is the 40-40-20 rule. It's app- and this is I talked about this in my book, Over Deliver. And I, the 40-40-20 rule was a rule that was goes back probably to 1950s or 60s or 70s, where the concept was that the success of any direct marketing campaign is the success depends on 40% list, 40% mm-hmm. the offer, and 20% mm-hmm. the creative or the messaging. Mm-hmm. And so that sounds like the creative is half as important as the list and the offer. And that's where I came up with the list is the least important until it's not, because I made the 40-40-20 rule, the 41-39-20 rule, and mm-hmm. the 41 became the list. You have a product or service, the first thing you want to do is find the list universe that's, whether it doesn't matter if it's offline or online, who are you going to market it? to that are going to buy it. And Mm -hmm. that's the most important thing to do. That's the 41%. Then you want to work in a a killer offer, an irresistible offer. Mm -hmm. And then you go to the copywriter. And the reason why I say that the creative is the least important until it's not, and why the list is the most important first, is that if you have a perfect audience, a perfect list to mail to, and you get mediocre, uh, an offer that's not irresistible and and creative that's kind of mediocre, you'll still get some sales. Mm Because the offer, because you got lists that are relative to that offer and and, and to that and to that creative, but the list is so perfect for the for the product that you're going to sell some. However, right. if you have the best creative on earth and you are mailing it to an audience that's not interested or not segmented or not targeted, you get zero order. I mean, you'll get right. zero order. So the key is to get the list dialed in first, the offer dialed in, and then the creative. And the creative and the offer go hand in hand sometimes because a great copywriter is going to develop the offer with you or mm-hmm. as they develop package or the promotion. So every success that I had early on that convinced me that this was for me as well was seeing the lift in responses and revenue and profit from doing it this way. In your new book, Over Deliver, which I've listened twice, you talk about lifetime value. What is lifetime value or LTV for short and how business owners and marketers can use it? Lifetime is relative, right? I mean, everybody has a different lifespan, but the lifespan of a customer is what we're talking about. And to to illustrate this, I'll I'll, I'll tell a quick little story. I was sitting once with Marty Edelston. Uh, We were looking at the financials for the business one day, and we were looking at all the new business coming in for subscriptions and book buyers. And then we looked at the the item, the line item that said bottom line personal, our biggest newsletter, which had over 500,000 active subscribers. And we looked at the renewals. How many mm-hmm. people were renewing a second or third or fourth time? And that line item on the financials for the business was by far the single biggest line item for a hundred million dollar business I'm talking about. So when, and Marty turned to me, he goes, Brian, you know, we're in, we're in the business of bottom line personal renewal. And I kind of knew that, but saying it 
made it so much more powerful. But how does that relate to lifetime value? Well, Dick Benson, who was the, the top, probably the smartest man who ever lived in the world of direct mail in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, not in the 80s, mostly yeah, in the, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, not mm -hmm. when he died. I think he died in the late 80s, early 90s. Anyway, but Benson developed, and I talk about this in Over Deliver, developed what he called the bogey. And the bogey is, the, is how much you can afford to lose on your first order to make it back at some future time. Then you start calculating, okay, if if I have to, if I, if my cash flow tells me I have to make the money back within six months, then you have to do secondary and third order offers or a renewal of some kind to get the money so that you can break even from the initial promotion that you lost money on. But mm -hmm. you shouldn't be afraid to lose money on your first order. And a lot mm -hmm. of online marketers figured this out early on, the most successful online marketers didn't even realize they were basically practicing lifetime value in their business. They were figuring out how much can I lose on the first order, make it back on the second order or make it back on the renewal. And then you start stockpiling cash and you invest more in the media to get new business because you know what the point of break even is. So the lifetime value could be, it could be three years, five years, 10 years, but you also need to know within lifetime value when the break even point is, and can you stomach that in terms of your cash flow? So mm -hmm. it's, it's not a compli it, it can be a complicated calculation because you're getting orders from all sorts of different <laughs> directions and you can't attribute them in different ways. You know, you have orders coming in through different media all the time and you don't know where it's coming from. But the idea of tracking everything on your customer file is the most important thing that you can do in your business so that you can actually track the lifetime value, the total money spent. And it also ties into you know, the three most important letters in direct marketing, RFM. RFM is not a rule of thumb. It's basically human behavior, how customers and your clients, it's true for B2B, everything how they behave in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. And what RFM says is that someone who responds, it stands for recency, frequency, and monetary value. Mm -hmm. It says that re, uh, uh, someone who responds more recently is worth much more than someone who responds less recently. Mm -hmm. So someone who responded in the last month or three months is far more valuable than someone who responded in the last six months or a year. Frequency mm -hmm. says how many times did they respond? Mm -hmm. So someone who is recent and frequent. So someone who responded in the last three months, but also has responded in the last six months, 12 months, and has multiple purchases with you or multiple uh, interactions with you, is worth a lot more. And then mm -hmm. the monetary, how much they've spent total with you. If you keep mm -hmm. track of all of that information on your customer file, you will create a lifetime value calculation just by having that data to say how much is a new customer worth to you. Mm -hmm. You know, when I like you deal with a dentist or, or uh, yeah, let's, let's use dentists as an example. There's a lot of marketers who, a lot of dental practices that have gone into marketing masterminds to learn this because it's so critical to their practice Whereas if you don't do it, you're kind of flying by the seat of your pants. And so mm -hmm. the dentists that I know that look at lifetime value and look at RFM, they're looking at attracting new clients, new, new patients, not just by word of mouth, which is good, not just by referral, which is good, but by going out and prospecting new business based on the fact that they have an existing client base, patient base, that they know what a new customer, a new patient is worth. If they can take a look at a new patient, they come in for their first cleaning and they stay with you for three years with root canals and fillings and whatever, and you can put RFM onto that patient, you can see that you can take some of that money and use it in marketing for new patients that look like that patient, that, that patient that was spending money with you over three years. I'm using that as an example just to show that, I mean, we did it at in the millions of names through regression modeling, through modeling the actual behavior of every customer, but you can do it at a base level if you have 100 patients in a dental practice, you can practice lifetime value, RFM, all of these things that will be exponential for the business within your business. I mean, it's not going to, you know, if you have a million dollar business, it's not going to make you a $100 million dental practice, but it's going to really put you on solid footing for how you spend money on marketing, how you spend money on your existing patients. The idea of, you know, people want to be cheapskates once they get a customer is the exact opposite of what to do. I have a whole mm -hmm chapter and over deliver on customer service and fulfillment. Customer mm -hmm. service and fulfillment are marketing function because they add mm -hmm. to the lifetime value of a customer.
So I mentioned a lot of different concepts there, but lifetime value is so multidimensional. It's got a lot of aspects, but I hope I touched on enough that folks get an idea of what I'm talking about when I talk yeah. about lifetime value. If you want to know how to hire the right copywriter, watch this interview until the very end. Please like and share this episode to help grow the channel. If you want to be notified about my upcoming guests, hit the bell below. Brian, during your 40-year career in direct marketing, you have sent close to 2 billion pieces of direct response advertisement. What was your the worst marketing campaign? Why did it happen? And what did you learn from it? There were campaigns that just did badly, and I don't want to. I'd rather focus on what I, the lesson learned is what's important. The biggest mistake I made, one of the biggest mistakes, it's in it's in over deliver, was after the biggest success. So the biggest success in my career was when we got into the infomercial business at Boardroom, meaning infomercial meaning TV, long form TV, twenty eight and a half minute infomercials selling a book, a health book. The story is in Over Deliver. Hopefully people will get my book and they'll read the whole, how we got to do that. That was the biggest success. The biggest failure was that was reading my press clippings, basically, is what I'll say. And what I mean by that is that we were told when we got into the infomercial business that one in 20 infomercials will work and you'll be able to roll out to be able to continue with. We had right out of the gate, we had a great producer. We had everything in place. We had the best media buyers. We had a great concept that we developed. Three of our first four infomercials went through the roof. They, to the tune of like $200 million in total, and actually the whole franchise but with direct mail and on the internet after the infomercial, it was probably close to $300 million franchise over maybe three years or four years. So three out of four infomercials that we produce work. And then I couldn't, I felt I could do no wrong. It was like, I... I got this nailed. I Nobody knew infomercials like we knew infomercials. We have nailed TV. We can do TV better than any marketer who's ever existed. And we proceeded to do nine infomercials after that that failed miserably, one after another. We used a lot of the same concepts of the three that worked. We didn't like drift too far, but we did drift in terms of like, Oh, we only spent you know two hundred thousand dollars on the last show. Let's spend eight hundred thousand dollars on this one and get some actors from Hollywood, get some star power, you know, create like these incredible you know infomercials that are going to be like movies, you know, a, a twenty-eight and a half minute movie selling a book, right. and um, they just all failed miserably. So the simple lesson I learned was, you know, you got to believe your numbers, you got to believe what you're doing, but you can't just assume that you've, you've mastered something after a couple of successes and you can't read your press clippings. I mean, we were in the trade magazines in the infomercial business saying, who are these guys from Boardroom? They There were a couple of weeks where we went over a million dollars a week in mm -hmm. media spend and we were averaging like 250,000 a week through those three years of the infomercial. That put us on the map of, of infomercial media buyers. So people were taking notice, like these guys are heroes. These guys are like unbelievable. They, and people started ripping us off in terms of their creative or creative and stuff like that. I just, you know, you get you get sucked into it in a bad way that says, oh, man, they even say we're great. They even say we're the best of all time. So, you know, you start saying we can do no wrong. And after one after another of the infomercials we ran, bomb, every single one of them. Not one of them was able to roll out further. And again, I fell in love with them too. I mean, I thought if I, if I went back to them now, I'd say that's a really damn good show, mm -hmm. but it didn't work. And it just tells you, you know, it's not what, it's not, it's not how genius you are. It's, it's the marketplace. And I think you had a question that talked about uh, Gene Schwartz. I think it's the, it's the quote that says it was like the copywriter, the creative person doesn't create desire in the marketplace. Right, right. Um, what does the copywriter do? What does the marketer do? What does the creative person do? The, the desire is already in the marketplace. It exists already right. there. The idea right. is to find it and channel it. And that's about list selection. That's about mm. who's out there that could buy your product and how you're going to do something that's going to appeal to them. 
as opposed to saying, I know what it is, I'll create it and they'll buy it. Doesn't work that way. You know, it's the consumer is is the ultimate arbiter of what you, if your work is good. Going back to our original part of the interview, what we what, what turned me on to direct marketing was the ultimate failure in this failure of mine in the infomercial business to not recognize what the marketplace wanted and deliver that as opposed to deliver what I thought was perfect for them. So it's not just overconfidence in your ability because of the previous success. It's not the only one mistake which you made, right? So the mistake was that you, at some point, start thinking, you and I mean your team, that you can do whatever and they will buy, right? Right. Without, instead it's, it's, of soliciting what exactly they need. You know, if they, it, it's if, if you build it, they'll come. You know, the whole the from from uh, yeah. build the dreams. You know, uh -huh. um, it's a great quote in in terms of marketing. If you build it, they may come. <laughs> I mean, yeah, they they're, not, come. they're not automatically coming. <laughs> right, that's the biggest mistake, right? Yes. Everybody does. In one of your interview, you said most people think that finding a mentor is as easy as scrolling through your Facebook friends and reaching out with a well-crafted email. But that's completely wrong. Your mentors actually choose you. Why is that? Who were your mentors and who have made the greatest impact on you? The mentors that made the biggest impact are the ones that chose me, not the ones that I went out and said, you know, wrote an email and said, will you be my mentor? In fact, my, my blog last week was actually, the, the, the subject line was, will you be my mentor? And I talked about that. I basically said that, you know, if someone actually says, oh, I'll teach you something, I'll, you know, if you go out and say, will you be my mentor? And they actually say yes, which they won't. But if they actually did, you're not going to get a mentor. You're going to get a teacher of a, on a concept or you'll get a, a coach for a project or something like that. That's not a mentor. A lifelong mentor is something much bigger than that. And so the, the key in having a mentor choose you, and I have a step-by-step -step in this short video that I had embedded in this blog post, which was about that, you know, you need to basically, if you're, if you really, and, and we all need mentors, we all need people to guide us. We all need to stand on the shoulders of giants, all of that, but it doesn't happen. It's not an easy button. It's not a mentor button. So basically the, the steps are fairly simple though. You come up with, you, you write down what you, what your, what your skill sets are, what, what you are best at you personally, yeah. what, in fact, even better, if you ask the question, what do I do better than almost anyone in terms of what I do? So if you have mm -hmm. some kind of superpower, something that you do that you can share with people, and hopefully you've had some experience and you have some wisdom and you've done something of significance so that what you're sharing comes from your experience even better, obviously. Going back to Jay Abraham, if you did it, you need to teach it. What are those things that you own in your toolbox that are unique to you that you could share? That's step one. Step two is that if you really want to find a mentor, make a list of the people that you would love to be your mentor. Like choose them first. You're not going to go out with an email to say, will you be my mentor? But just make a list of the people like if that person was my mentor, a deep, profound mentor, people, some Someone who I could go to almost any time for advice, for you know, a game plan for what I'm working on, just someone that would be in my life forever. What would be my wish list? You make a wish list of mentors. And then what you do is you figure out and you study that mentor. Obviously, you would know who they are. You also know they're probably really busy, but you need to research them and get a sense of what, like what would be the, the gaps, the void in what they're doing. And this is tough to do because they're probably successful if they want them to be your mentor. And so what have they done successfully? And what do you see as maybe some gaps in what they haven't done? And then you kind of overlap that with what your skill sets are and you offer up something to them, whether it's to work for them for free on a particular aspect that you think they need help in, that you can supply. Because chances are you're looking for a mentor who's in your business, right? You're looking for someone right. who is you know, knows your business to some degree and you know theirs. So it's if you can find that thing, to, to share with them and you and you basically offer it up you don't charge them for it you say i you know i, I follow your career i you know i always say flattery doesn't work on everyone but it works on me you know you can <laughs> flatter them but it's got to be sincere you know right. you're you know you're someone i followed my whole career who i want to be my mentor but i'm not going to ask you to do that what i'd rather do is share my expertise with you and then we'll see where it goes from there kind of thing. i see and so 
The two examples that I have in my book were from Dick Benson and Gene Schwartz. Dick Benson was the top direct male consultant in the world, direct male genius in the world, direct male savant in the world. And Gene Schwartz was the top copywriter in the world, wrote breakthrough advertising, just you know, world-class. Now I did have a connection to them because Gene had written copy for us and Dick had done some consulting for us at Boardroom, but they weren't going to be my mentor. They were like, you know, I was their client, you know, and they were just going to do stuff as indicated. But what I found out in both of their cases, they had direct mail businesses on their, on the side, their list selection and their list brokers were not good. And I was the best list picker of all time. I mean, I was the, I mean, I'm not, I'm not bragging, but it's true. I was the best list manager in the industry. And so, and I also had all the list history that boardroom was using that I could share with each of them with the selections, with the segmentation. So basically I offered myself up to each of them as being like a, an ad hoc list broker that could fill in for their inadequate list brokerage uh, at the time. I didn't ask them for anything. And what happened over time is that, you know, I became not only Dick Benson's favorite client, but his favorite mentee. He would come to me for advice after a while. And I would go spend days with him down at his at his office, both for boardroom and for just general mentoring. Uh, Gene Schwartz used to invite me to his house for lunch and we just would share his wisdom. And, and it happened over, over a couple a few years, obviously, mm-hmm. but it started with me figuring out that I had that was unique to me that they didn't have. That's mm-hmm. the key question. And that's the way you get your mentors to choose you. And it, it's happened many other times for me as well, where I offered up certain other expertise that I had to someone. What came back was mentorship. So that's the concept of. In chapter six of your book, Over Deliver, you quoted one of the best copywriters in history, Gene Schwartz. It is not the copywriter's job to create desire. Why is that? And what is the copywriter's job? I think I touched on that already, but the desire is already in the marketplace for whatever you're selling. Uh-huh. The, uh, the copywriter's job is to like connect to the desire in the marketplace and write to that desire and then mm-hmm. find the, the people. And again, this is list selection as well, that if mm-hmm. you're writing to those people in their own language, in their own words, I mean, that's the copywriter's job. It's The copywriter's job is not to create poetry or art. Mm-hmm. It's to create messaging that appeals to a slice of the marketplace that has a desire that needs to be you know quelled. And, and Gene talks about this in Breakthrough Advertising in terms of two specific specific areas and, and others too, but two specific areas, you need to know what the the level of sophistication of the person you're writing to. Are they sophisticated in the product that you're selling? Do they need to be taught more about it because they right. don't know anything about it? So the level of sophistication and also the level of awareness. And he has like stages of awareness, stages of sophistication. And based on those stages, that's what the copywriter writes to. And mm-hmm. each of those is different universes of people. You know, mm-hmm. a someone who is very aware of your product or who are pro- they call it product aware and solution aware. They know what the solution is. That's someone that you have to write to very differently than someone that has no idea that you have a solution for them. Nice. So, it, and it's, it gets very complex, but that the writer's job and it's all in breakthrough advertising and Gene lays it out. It's, it's a very dense book, obviously. It's the quintessential book on what the copywriter's job is. That's another thing that that was what Gene was my mentor. Gene, Gene had given the rights to breakthrough advertising to boardroom to publish. Marty and I didn't do much with it. And mm-hmm. then after he died, I went to Gene's wife when I when I launched Titans Marketing. And I went to Gene's wife. I said, you know, let's republish a Titans Marketing edition of Breakthrough Advertising and let's sell it all over the world. And mm-hmm. that was like five years ago. And since oh. then, we have sold at least, I guess, not, not 5,000 books, but probably like maybe 4,000 books in over Remember 50 that? countries around the world. And, and Barbara, Gene's wife, says Gene's more popular today than he ever was. Um, and the book and the book was written in 1966 and right. not one word has been changed i've added some stuff to the book i added an afterword that i wrote i added mm-hmm. some some classic ads that gene wrote in the in the edition from titans but the actual manuscript from 1966 is word for word today as it was in 1966 brian based on your experience what are the top three mistakes direct response marketers should avoid 
You know, I think, and this is online or offline. It's, it's. I think it's not a. They're mistakes, but they're mistake. They're mistakes of of commission, not omission. So these are things that can be corrected. One is statistical significance. You know, there are a lot of online marketers that think that if they're doing a launch and you know you have you have a hundred dollar product. I think I might have this story in over deliver. They have a hundred dollar product, and you get and and in in real time you have twelve orders and eight orders, and you think that that you have a winner because someone, because you have 12 orders at $100, mm-hmm. that's not a winner. You have to get, and again, it's different based on the price point of your product. It's different based on how many names you have available to go out to. But statistical significance means that if you have a result that you want to call a winner over a control, like you have a control and you want to call a winner over it, you need to have certain criteria that develop that of statistical significance that tell you when you can call something a winner. It can be based on the number of orders. It can be based on the number of dollars. It can be, I mean, Dick Benson had some rules of thumb in direct mail that for us at Boardroom, we had $39 product. So for him with a, with a low price product like that, it was a hundred orders, basically a hundred orders at, you know, at at $39 would basically give you enough to say whether that's enough to say if it's a winner or a loser. So that's one mistake I see direct marketers make to, just get make sure that when you're calling something a control, it's really a control. I mean, we we had situations where, and this this applies online. We had a situation in direct mail where we had a newsletter that sold for cash with order, meaning that they paid thirty nine dollars up front, and then it looked like it won because it got a lot more orders based on the promotion and and number mm-hmm. of subscribers to something else that was thirty nine dollars. And then a year later, the winner had a very low renewal rate, and the renewal rate, if you take the renewal rate into account with the renewal rate of the other package that it beat at the beginning, I would have called the other one the control, not the not the not the one that we did. And so online, the same thing could happen. You could have two offers going out, you know, $159. And then you have to track that in terms of how many people are going to refund, how many people are not going to renew or not buy a second offer off of that on an upsell. You have to take all of that into account before you call your control. I think online marketers who are not doing that are just impatient more than anything else. They think mm-hmm. they have a winner. They want to roll out with it. They want to move quickly. Look, in direct mail, we, we had to wait six months before we could mm-hmm. call a control. Online yeah. marketers can still do it in, in weeks, but they mm-hmm. don't have to do it in a day. And so the idea of getting to statistical significance is very important. I think that another mistake I think a lot of online marketers make is that when creative and, and copy and messaging becomes an anyhow part of the of the of the promotion. Remember I told you in the 413920 rule, right. if you have the list and the offer dialed in, you don't have to spend a lot of money on creative to make some more to get make some money. And I right. think that the, the the lure of a quick cash influx supersedes sometimes taking your time to develop world-class creative. Because once you have the, the list and the offer for dialed in, the time and effort that you spend either as a copywriter or with a copywriter to get world-class creative will take your business to new heights. Mm -hmm. And so I think... I guess settling for mediocre creative is a mistake I see a lot of uh, online marketers make. I guess another thing is that listening to your audience, you know, the mm-hmm. idea of going back to letting your audience tell you what they want. I mean, I'm not saying you have to survey, you know, all the time, and I'm not talking about paralysis by analysis, but I do think that understanding what your customers want, getting the information right from them, and then delivering it to them. Again, it's it's actually one one of those things that isn't done because of impatience more than anything else. All you have to do is be a little more patient and do a little more research and you'll get much more, you'll get much better results in the long run. So what you're saying is it's a mistake not to listen to your audience, right? Absolutely. Because the thing is, that's when you'll go out. That's what, I guess, what we did in the infomercial business. We went out nine times to to an audience that didn't exist. Mm -hmm. Whereas the first three successes, it was an audience that exists. How did we, how did that disconnect happen. We should have been surveying all of the buyers of the three infomercial successes and then looking at that audience because obviously the audience for some of the other products was very different. Right. We oh, didn't I know. see the product. Got it. So the products for those nine which didn't go well, the product was different too, right? 
you not just change the format, make it more sophisticated. Yeah, I mean, some of them, so, some of them surprised me because they were health products, but they were different types of health products. I see. They were health products that talked about prevention as opposed to cure, and that's mm -hmm. a significant thing. One of the infomercials we did that failed, we didn't even realize we were selling prevention and not a cure, but and it was too late by the time we realized it. Now let's talk about success. What was the most successful marketing campaign? Why was it so successful? And how much money did your company make from it, if you can tell? It's definitely the infomercial business, which I talked about. Uh -huh. And it was all the planning that we did. And again, it's a long story, and I think we're running short on time, so I don't want right. to tell the whole story. Right. But I'm hoping people after this interview will pick up my book at overdeliverbook.com because it's not just the book. I have amazing bonuses on that page. And uh, books, you know, $20. But I, I think right. that there are some great stories in there where people will get the insight. But there's another success story that's also in there in the book and one that I'm really proud of. So the infomercial business probably accounted for about $300 million mm -hmm. in success, which started wow. with, an ins with me having insomnia in 2013 when I woke up in the middle of the night and saw an infomercial on TV and figured out the format for my infomercial. The other big success was developing a book division from other people's content because boardroom was very internal with our content our books were all content from our newsletters they were all you know kind of like greatest hits from what we did previously and we were running out of content to do more big books and so the story and i tell this story i told it once i told it how i went to barnes and noble with a hand truck but it was basically i went to barnes and noble the bookstore and walked around the bookstore and this is about lists again this is about knowing your lists knowing the buyers that you you have knowing the customers you have because I knew every category that they of books and newsletters that they had bought from me so I knew that they liked information on taxes estate planning finance investing health and in health diabetes a heart disease home improvement I had a lot of different things that we covered in our, in our editorial so I went to Barnes and Noble and I went to every category the categories are all there on top of the bookshelves right and so I went to every category that was a category that are people that bought books from us. I think that visit to Barnes & Noble, I bought like $900 worth of books. Um, <laughs> I, I put them in the trunk of my car, my 1984 Camry, Toyota Camry, and the, the trunk went down to the tailpipe. And anyway, and then I, I went, I created a, a system reading out what books we could use for direct mail that were sitting on the shelves of Barnes and Noble collecting dust. That mm -hmm. was the concept. Then, you know, so we, we took the books to our editors. We said to the editors at Boardroom, which books would you feel proud or at least accepting of putting our logo on then they weeded out a lot of books that they didn't like then we had a, we narrowed it down then we went to our copywriters and we said which of these books could you write a great direct mail promotion and they gave us those then we went to that then the list is down to a smaller list and then we did concept tests to our audience questionnaire mm -hmm. tests surveys mm -hmm. to our audience mm -hmm. to say would you buy this book or not and we did blurbs on each book that whole system created a book division at boardroom of our not our own content that you know created a book division that you know was like a 50 million dollar book division it was half the size wow. of the company and 50 even five zero five zero oh, um, wow. but but even more than that it contributed to the infomercial business so then we were at 100 50 million with the infomercial business and having more books and content gave us a lot more leeway in what we could do. Right. Basically, all it was was <clears throat> figuring out who was on our list and what are the what, what could we still sell them that was not something that we had to produce ourselves. That's all it was. In fact, it Good. came from Gordon Grossman, another one of our consultants who built the Reader's Digest in the 1960s, mm. and he became our consultant. And I remember he said to me one day, I said, running out of, he said, he said, what makes you think, Brian, that you can't, all of your content needs to be created from by, internally mm -hmm. there's a lot of content out there that you would be comfortable with and that's what gave me the give me the idea to go to Barnes and Noble and buy books and do this whole gauntlet of creating a book division of non-boardroom content. And, uh, you know, we, we actually created books that we had to eliminate content from the book because, you know, it was like if our editor said, we don't like this book because it's got stuff on chelation therapy or on urine therapy or something that was controversial, we still got the rights to the book and we just took out those sections. It didn't have to be 100% of the book because mm -hmm. the deal we made with the publishers was that recreate 
create the book in any in any form we wanted. And right. we would also add premiums and bonuses from our own content. So it would mm-hmm. have a feel, a boardroom feel to it. So the whole package was a boardroom package, even though the book itself was outside content. Please like and share this episode to help grow this channel. If you want to be notified about upcoming guests, hit the bell below. If you want to know how to hire the right copywriter, our guest is going to share it with us right now. So, Brian, what criteria and red flags should we pay attention to when we are hiring a copywriter? You don't go to a copywriter store and hire a copywriter. <laughs> I've written about this a lot. It's it's in chapter six of Overdeliver. And I talk about the seven characteristics that were prevalent in every great copywriter I ever worked with. So I, I basically wrote down all the best copywriters I ever worked with. Gary Bensavanga, Gene Schwartz, Jim Rutz, Mel Martin, et al. And I kind of said, what do they all have in common? What are the characteristics that they all have in common? And I came up mm-hmm. with seven. I think if you're going to try to hire a copywriter, why not hire a really good one? And so you want to hire them based on these seven characteristics. The seven characteristics are hunger, which you can ask. They don't have to tell you that they're hungry. They'll show mm-hmm. you that they're hungry because you'll ask mm-hmm. them questions about how they're developing their career, who, you know, how they get new clients, how they research, how they do that kind of stuff. Well, hunger mm-hmm. is one. Insatiable curiosity is another. So the idea that they can show you that, they're not going to tell you that. You have to ask questions of them that they show you that they have insatiable curiosity. Oh, so, you know, you worked on a client. How did you research that client? What were the, what were the techniques you used? All of that. Then uh, the third characteristic is uh, what I call, do they use feedback loop? You know, who do they hang out with? in their their copywriting practice and why. Mm -hmm. So if they write copy, do they run it by other great copywriters to get input? They can't write Mm -hmm. it with other people. Copywriting is not a group activity, but they write it in isolation and then they share it. So who are the feedback loops you use? Who do you hang out with? Who do you get feedback from? The fourth is passion. If they were writing on a subject for you or a product for you, have they written on that product before? And then what kind of passion (laughs) do they have in that product area? And what have they done in that product area to to develop that passion. The fifth is, do they have a sense of direct marketing fundamentals? Do they understand lifetime value? Do they understand the 41, 39, 20 rule and that lists are the most important? Do they understand RFM? You know, basically, if they understand those three things and they can show you in the interview that they do, that's a copywriter worth pursuing. When I hired a copywriter, the first thing they didn't ask me for was a list history. I fired them or I didn't work with them. The first thing they should know want to know if they're writing for you is who has responded to this offer before, or if it's a new offer, what is what is the list universe you're going after based on the list recommendations that you have from your list broker, and how are they going to attack it? So number five is direct marketing um, knowledge and, and fundamentals. Six is humility. You know, I, I want them to be confident, but not arrogant. You know, I want them to show me how much they know without letting me know that they're the best thing since sliced bread, and that if I don't hire them, I'm a fool. And that, you know, there's a thin line between arrogance and confidence. And the arrogance comes in also, even if they're the best copywriter, it's going to enter in if you can pick it up on an interview that's going to get in the way of you doing work with them in the future or long term. So humility is important. And then number seven, which for most people hiring a copywriter would be number one, which would be their work, like their portfolio, what they've done in the past. And frankly, I don't think, I think that's the least important, not the least important. It's very important, but it's only important if you get through the first six. You know, if they have hunger, insatiable curiosity, feedback loops, passion, direct marketing knowledge, and humility, once you cover all that, oh, let me see your sample. If you have identified that they are, if on a scale of one to 10, they're an eight, nine, or a 10 on most of those first six, mm-hmm. you'll see it in their copy. So that's a, that's a quick guide in terms of hiring a copywriter. Right. You know, don't just go to a copywriter you know, website or, you know, just trying to find somebody on the cheap or find somebody who's convenient. Really dig deep because as I said, copywriting is the least important element until it's not. And so when it's not, it's the most important. And that's why when you have, you're ready to go find a copywriter, finding the best one for what you're looking for will be the single most impactful thing that will take your business to the next level. Everyone knows that the first mass adopted social network was MySpace. But despite of 250 million of MySpace users, Facebook was able to become the largest social network. Not many people know what marketing technology helped Facebook to dominate the market. In your book, you talk about regression modeling. Could you enlighten us what is regression modeling and how can we use it? 
Regression modeling is a technique, a statistical technique that basically mm -hmm. says who buys from me or who responds to me, I want to find more people like them mm -hmm. in, in the marketplace. That's mm -hmm. basically what it is. However, mm -hmm. by regression modeling, it means that you would mail a portion of a, of a universe. Like we would have like a 2 million name universe of previous buyers that we would mail 50,000 or 100,000 names across the board to. We would get responses, but without segmentation, we would lose money on that 50,000 or 100,000, but we would get responses that we could look at of people who responded to the offer and say, and, and they all had, I'll call it, they had tags. Remember I said, you have to keep track of what every right. customer does on mm -hmm. your database. We did that on 2 million names, on 9 million names. We kept wow. track of everything they bought by the date, by the amount, all of that. So when you bring it in, it's all done on computer, obviously, not doing this by hand, but right. it comes in and we could identify the best char the characteristics of all the people that responded to that nth name, that cross-section. And then we create what we call a games chart to figure out of the rest of the universe, how we're going to go find people that look like the ones that responded. And then you can prioritize the names in the full universe by those characteristics that responded and only mail to the ones that would be profitable. On Facebook, people felt like they they, they said that they have lookalike models. A lookalike model is not a regression model. A regression model is one where you mailed at a loss to, to figure out who was going to respond in the future. A lookalike mm -hmm. model is just taking your existing customers and matching them against the universe and seeing where the matches are and then going after those. Lookalike models Models are better than not a lookalike model, but it's not the be all end all, but it does work. The whole idea is that you, and it's just common sense. If you have buyers of a product, you want to go find more buyers like them. Right. And regression modeling is a statistical technique that does that. It was revolutionary at Boardroom. Mm -hmm. Today, you consult and work directly with bleeding edge direct response marketing companies and entrepreneurs in a wide variety of categories and in all channels through your mastermind groups. Titans Mastermind, Titans Masterclass, and Titans Accelerator. What are the differences between these three groups and how can we benefit from them? Titans Accelerator is the, I don't want to call it the, uh, it's not a beginner's group by any means. I have rock stars in that group, but mm -hmm. it's an inexpensive virtual mastermind where I get, I have over, I have close to 300 members, copywriters, direct marketers, entrepreneurs of all kinds, agency owners, media buyers, funnel builders, and all in this group where we just share and uh, we, we do call, we do live calls. We have hot seats, people like with their challenges and opportunities. We get great guest speakers. And, you know, COVID has been very good for that business because it, it launched as a virtual business before COVID. Mm -hmm. And then when COVID came, I went from monthly calls to weekly calls. And now we do two to four calls a month. It's an amazing group. The heart-centered entrepreneurs, marketers, copywriters, and I think it's uh, it's the best mastermind of its kind. All multi-channel marketers, online, offline, and everybody sharing and giving to each other. And it's all in the spirit of everything that I talk about and over-deliver in terms of you know sharing a hundred of yourself, just like when you mentors choose you, you give your superpower to everybody else. Just like I talked about your golden ticket into the room. Everybody comes into Titans Accelerator with a golden ticket. Um, and then they have to share that, what they, what their wisdom is and then get, and they get everybody else's wisdom. It's been phenomenal. It's in its third year, maintaining it 250 to 300 members. And I love them. I just love every one of them. The Titans Master Class was a next step up. That was more live event, um, mm -hmm. two live events a year. And that was, I've disbanded it for now, just because it was in the middle. It was too much in the middle. It was like $11,500 a year for two events. And it was too expensive for some, and it wasn't what people wanted. And so that's what inspired me to do Titans Accelerator, which is like $2,000 a year, like $150 a month or $2,000 a month. That's really been replaced it in, in a way. And now Titans mm -hmm. Mastermind is my high-end group, and it's a limited to only 30 companies maximum. And these are like the best of the best multi-channel rec marketers that I can find all in the same spirit that are in Titans Accelerator, but they're willing to come to three live events a year with credible guest speakers. You know, that's, that's $20,000 a year, 25,000 if you come with a
a partner. That's been in existence for seven years, going strong. And I always have close to 30 of the best direct response marketers on the planet in that group. And it's very rewarding. And a lot of those people teach the accelerators. I bring them in as guest speakers to the accelerators. The accelerator is accelerators are not a farm system for Titan's Mastermind. Like I'm not mm-hmm. looking to move them up, Titan's Mastermind, but some of them have requested to move up and I interview them and see if they, it, whether Titan's Mastermind is a good fit for some of the accelerators. But, and even within Accelerator, a lot of those members speak within the group. Like I do them this Titan Spotlight. So there are people in the group that make presentations on their superpower to the entire mm-hmm. group. And it's just like having a guest speaker from the outside, but they're internal in the group, which is just a one, it's so satisfying to have people in the group that are as expert as anybody I could get on the outside. So that's the, those are the groups. That's what I do for my teaching. And then I sell educational materials, breakthrough advertising, Gene Schwartz's mm-hmm. other book, Brilliance Breakthrough. And then Over Deliver, you know, overdeliverbook.com is where I basically have just put a, a, a bonus package that's mm-hmm. worth thousands of dollars because I guess if you do a book that's titled Over Delivery, you have to over deliver on the bonuses. And I've mm-hmm. got like, uh, you know, 19 keynote speeches that Jay Abraham's given on that site and a course that Jay developed on that site. It cost him a couple hundred thousand dollars to develop. I've got mm-hmm. a swipe file from Dan Kennedy, a swipe a, a, a swipe file from Gary Bensavenga, books from Dick Benson and Gordon Grossman, who I've mentioned, full PDFs of their out of print books. So there's like mm-hmm. incredible bonuses there. And so I feel like that's my that's how I give back anybody who wants to buy my book. Yeah, for $29 for your book, it's like... Uh that bonus when I download it and watch all these videos, it's just like you give away so much value for so few money. It's amazing. It, yeah, it's not so about much. the money. Yeah, it's yeah, not about the money. Real contribution. Like you, you Thank put, you. yeah, your action where you move. If you start your career tomorrow again, what advice would you give to your younger self? I did a good job as my younger self. I didn't understand that your mentors choose you back then, but I did it. I didn't understand what made a good copywriter, but I was learning it. I guess I would tell my younger self to be a little more patient, which is interesting because that's the piece of advice I'd give to online marketers today. And I was a little impatient to get further ahead faster. I also would tell myself that to not underestimate the value of the list part of the business. Because even back then, the glamour was the copywriting. The glamour was, you know, in the marketing and the actual list building the actual list creation, the actual list segmentation, which was the nitty gritty, which is what I was doing, I always felt like it wasn't important enough. It wasn't glamorous enough. And I would tell myself to calm down. I would tell myself, this is the best education you're getting by being involved with lists. So I guess that fast forward to today, I give that advice going backwards. I'm trying to think of things I I tell people that they should. Also, I think that, you know, when you're networking, I mean, I, I did a lot of, you know, just token networking back then just to meet people. And as time went on, I really was much more, the way I cultivated my relationships got so much more sophisticated. So I think if I told my my early self, I would say cultivate intensively from the beginning. Don't bother with the superficial relationships because they're not going to last and they're not going to stand the test of time anyway. So the idea of, you know, really developing a real relationship capital would be the key. Wow, thank you, Brian, for so many insights and for such interesting interview and for your book, Over Deliver. I believe everyone who buys Over Deliver gets instant free access to the Over Deliver collection. You can find the links on the, to the book and to the collection in the description below. And it was a pleasure have you a guest on the Contributor Show, Brian. Thank you so much for coming and for sharing all your wisdom with us and with our viewers. I hope our viewers enjoyed this interview. Thank you for your contribution. Same to you, Victor. If you like this interview, please like and share to help grow the channel. If you want to be notified about my upcoming guests, subscribe and hit the bell below. And by the way, who else should I interview? Leave a comment below. Thanks for watching. The contributors stay tuned.